Um, before we get started, I want to give a general welcome to the first um, episode of the London Aesthetics Forum for this year, and to thank the British Society of Aesthetics for its continued and recently renewed funding for our ongoing series. Um, and then without further ado, I'm going to introduce our speaker, Professor Robert Hopkins from New York University, um, who used to be closer, um, but has been at NYU since 2012, and was previously at the University of Sheffield um, and at Birmingham, and studied, I hadn't realized you actually studied it at UCL, so That's true. practically a local boy. Just for the MPhil. Just for the MPhil, yeah. nonetheless. Um, yeah, it was just Cambridge for the PhD, so it can't really compete with a London college. Alright, so many of you know that Professor Hopkins works in the philosophy of mind and aesthetics and is currently working on a book in the philosophy of imagination. How's that coming? That's, well, today's not helping, but today's good. Okay. <laughs> From which we will distract him today by talking about something not quite related. Um, he's published on pictorial representation, perception, the metaphysics of moral and aesthetic judgments. It's been published in a variety of journals, such as Mind, Philosophy, and Phenomenological Research, News Journal, Philosophy, Philosophical Review, a few aesthetics journals here and there as well, we might add. Um, Rob has also been the Honorary Secretary of the Mind Association, the President, and one of the founders of the European Society for Aesthetics and is currently a trustee of the American Society for Aesthetics, and we'll get you over here as a trustee for the BSA at some point, again, I'm sure. And has also been a recipient of the Philip Lieberhuhn Prize. Okay, so I'm going to hand it over to Rob, who has co-written this paper with the pictured Nick Riggle, who will now be in your thoughts as well. Artistic style as the expression of ideas. Thanks. Thank you, Stacey. Thanks to everyone for coming. Um, okay, so this is indeed joint work with my friend and former colleague, Nick Riggle. And as you can tell, he's the man who's the expert on style. <laughs> okay, so um, let's start. Everything I say is basically on your handout. I think. Most of it, anyway. Let's start by thinking about what the topic is and getting clear on a raft of views, because I'm going to negotiate my way through this raft while trying to stay afloat on one, or some such metaphor. Uh, so the first thing to note is that I'm talking about individual artistic style, not what's sometimes called general or generic style. So Poussin's paintings exhibit a classicism that is shared by the work of many artists. El Greco's mannerism is a general style, lots of other artists paint in a Maoist style. And Caravaggio, I don't know what to call this, I'm embarrassed having Paul here now, I think the term's right, let's call it early Baroque realism, is also shared by other artists, such as arguably Velázquez. So these are general styles. Lots of works by lots of artists might belong to them. But our topic is not general style, but individual style. Not what these two things have in common, but what the difference between them is, since I take it Caravaggio's style and Velázquez's differ, and if that's not clear enough, how about Degas and Lautrec's when it comes to pastels, and lots of other examples. I'm mostly going to talk about pictorial art, just because it's the stuff that's easy to show you, but the views intended to be entirely general in scope. So you can think about music, and you can even think about music 
with a capital A. You could think about Bob Dylan or David Bowie and what's distinct about their styles. And our view is intended to capture those two. We've seen various kinds of graffiti, all sorts of style, as long as it's vaguely in the realm of art. Later I'll be talking about art with a big A. I wonder if there's anything particular to say about that. But art with a big A won't be pictorial art with a big A. It'll be what used to be called high art before everyone decided that was too snobby a concept. Okay, so the topic is individual style. What might we say about this? Well, here's something that has been said and has been influential. This is a view explored by Jennifer Robinson in a famous paper from the 1980s. Robinson begins with this basic idea, an idea she takes from Richard Goldheim, which is that style is a matter of psychological reality. It's something to do with the psychological reality of the artist. So individual style is rooted in the artist's psychology. That's the core thought. In what aspect of the artist's psychology? Well, here's an idea, the artist's personality, where that is to be understood relatively broadly. Any set of stable dispositions, dispositions to feel certain emotions, the irascible, say, with part of your personality, but so with thoughtfulness, reflectiveness, whatever. Now, Robertson is basically sympathetic to this view, but she, like lots of other people, sees an obvious objection, which you might call the Tolstoy objection, which is this. Tolstoy's style is that of a compassionate and understanding person. <laughs> you can see where this is going. Tolstoy the man was a querulous old shit. So, what are we to do with this? Now, there are various responses, and the other positions basically occupy different possible responses to it. So Robinson's own preferred view is to move to appeal to an implied personality. For work to have individual artistic style is for it to be expression not of the personality of the actual artist, but of the implied personality of some implied artist. So for Tolstoy's work to be compassionate is for it to be as if it were written by a compassionate person, and who cares about what the surf owner himself was like. Now this note involves abandoning a key ambition of Robinson's, which she seems not to know what she's giving up on, which is that we are no longer understanding style as rooted in the psychological reality of the artist, since an implied artist is nothing but a construction, and his or her psychology is one further stage from reality. But fine, that's what she wants to do. Another way to go, which has been tentatively suggested in the literature, would be to, as it were, somehow narrow down the relevant bit of personality. So this we call the narrow personality view. For a work to have individual artistic style, it's which an expression of the personality of the artist in making art. Now there's two ways you go here, which is what the versus while marks. You might take the following view. Oh, I get it. The work style is a matter of the personality that the artist has while he's making his art. Let's think about Paul's story. He's irascible in general, but writing books brings out the best him. The best him is compassionate. There are compassionate elements to his personality. It is those that come out in the work. So while making art, he's compassionate, and that's what it is for the work, to be in a compassionate style. But this is just a kind of boring variation on the personality view, really. It just tries to limit the relevant aspects of personality by a temporal dimension. So it's more interesting, we think, to think about this kind of view, it's not the personality the artist has while making art, it's the personality they have in making art. In other words, it's those psychological traits and dispositions that come out in the making of art. 
And if we take this move, we needn't limit this to personality narrowly conceived. Any psychological disposition that is reliably manifested in the manufacture of the artist's work can be part of her style. So that's the view we'll take as our stalking horse insofar as we discuss the narrow personality view. But the option we're really interested in, of course, has got nothing to do with personality because it needs to connect to the title of the talk, and so it's got to have something to do with artistic ideals, and it's this. Style is indeed a matter of psychological reality, but not the personality of the artist. Rather, style is a matter of her ideals for her art. The work style is a matter of it's being an expression of the ideals she has for her art. For instance, her ideal to make art that is clean and sparing, or voluptuous and rich, or Dionysian and traumatic, or whatever you like. It's not part of the thought here that artists start making art with their ideals already firmed up. Maybe the ideals get firmed up as they make the art. Nonetheless, if the work ends up in style, in individual style, it's because it's ended up expressing the ideals that in the end were the ideals the artist had for her work. So that's the view just staked out very simply. I'll give you some examples as we go, and with luck that'll put a bit of flesh on the bones. Now, four views, enough work to do. Let's make things slightly worse by asking what expression means in this context. All four views appeal to the notion of expression, but what is expression? And sadly, for you, the dear listener, there are four options, at least four, and we don't want to get bogged down by picking any one of them as the horse any one view should ride. So, here are the four options, then I'll say what we're going to do with them. Firstly, the simplest view is just a causal notion. When a work expresses a personality, it's just an effect of that personality. It's the expression of ideals, it's the effect of the artist working while holding those ideals. That's a nice, straightforward notion. Maybe a little dull, but there you go. Secondly, we could go for a forensic notion. Maybe the notion of expression is what can be read off the work. So you've got to be able to tell from the work that this was its cause, or in the case of the implied view, seemed to be its cause. That's a more demanding notion in one respect. More demanding still, maybe you've got to be able to read it off the work, and you've got to be able to do that because the artist intended you to do that. So we have something like a Gricean communicative notion here. You see the work to be expressive of whatever it is because the artist intended you to see it as expressive of that. And finally, and most interestingly, we might have what we call, sometimes call an Collingwoodian notion. Those of you who've been unhappy enough to hear any of my other talks or spoken to me ever in life, one of them I'm actually one of the few great fans of R.G. Collingwood, alive today. And Collingwood's main thought about art was this. It articulates for you what it expresses. Apply that to style, and the style of a work could articulate for you whatever it expresses, be it the artist's personality or your ideals for the work. And not just for you, says Collingwood, but for all. What it articulates something from the one articulates it for all. So it makes clear both to the artist herself and to the audience what her personality is, what her ideas are, depending on what you're plugging in. Okay, now, um, given that we want 
the ideals expressed in work, not to have to be determinate before the work is finished, we better not go for this notion. Because causes have to be in place before they can have their effects. But the others are open to us. This is the one we really like, but nothing we say today especially turns on it. Other views similarly got a choice. The implied personality view can't have a merely causal notion because mere hypothetical constructs can't cause anything. But something like the other versions are available to it. The personality view has the full range available, etc. I'm going to try and float above this debate about what expression is. Just once or twice I'll dip into it because it'll matter at various points in the dialectic. But the ambition is sort of to try and leave this mess up of the matrix aside and just concentrate on these four insofar as it's possible. Okay, how to proceed? How are we going to test the issue between these views? Well, I'm going to give you a range of questions and see how the views answer them. And we hope these questions are part of our contribution to the debate, because they are a bit different from other questions that have been discussed in the literature, but they seem to us to be interesting and possibly even important. So I'll just give you a quick list of them, but then we'll go through them. One is, what range of features configure in artistic style? Example, handling of the brush can, but can choice of brand of paint. If so, why? If not, why not? Secondly, can flaws be stylistic? Defects in a work? Thirdly, what range of media or art forms can a style be expressed across? Picasso made sculpture and painting and drawing, but could he have made hip-hop records? It's not a question about Picasso's psychology. It's about whether his style coherently could be expressed in hip-hop. Fourthly, if I sum up four, style's an artistic achievement, but why? Fifthly, style's unified. Whence its unity? This is not really a question, but it's something I'll get into if there's time. Style's got something to do with gestalt. What? And finally, why is style important? Why does it matter? Why is it something that artists and audiences do and should attend to? Why is it of any interest to the project of art or entertainment if we're including things we don't want to consider as art? Okay, so that's plenty to do. Maybe I won't get to do it all. Let's start with this question of range then. What range of features configure in art, individual artistic style and why, according to the various views? So, some features clearly configure. If we just stick with the visual arts, there are some obvious candidates. We want to allow, for instance, that the expressive aspects of works can figure in style. Their subject matter can. Their formal aspects can. Example, Votto's style is partly characterised by the wistfulness that seeps into every picture of his, an expressive aspect. His pictures are also full of Piero, posh clowns if you like. That's also part of his style. De Chirico, whether or not all De Chiricos are melancholy, never mind the expressive aspect, often exploits screwed up perspective. That's part of his style. That's like something like a formal feature. Don't have to worry about where to place it today. Watto's brushstroke is so delicate. De Chirico's are putting it nicely firm, putting it another way loose. Right? These are all parts of style. 
So far, so easy. But where are the limits? What about choice of brand of paint? Could that be part of an artist's style? This is, to some extent, a silly question, but ask me, it'll just help soften you up to working with the views, and then we can ask a more interesting question in this ballpark. So the narrow personality view looks like it's going to have to say, uh, sure, as long as the choice of paint is a standing preference of the artist. Since the view says the style is just the expression of whatever stable psychological dispositions tend to come out in the artist's work, and this, by hypothesis, is what. It's another question, I guess, whether the work can express this standing preference. That will partly depend which notion of expression the view opts for. The more demanding the notion, the lower the chances. So maybe the view is not committed to saying the choice of paint has to be a stylistic feature. What about the implied personality view? Well, paint preference isn't normally part of personality ordinarily conceived. And then don't forget the implied personality view looks at everyday notion of personality. You know, what's Rob like? Oh, I don't know, he's a bit full of himself. He's generally vivacious and he's very fond of this particular paint brand. That was like the conversation taking a funny turn at the last point. Um, nonetheless, even though it's not part of personality, it could, I suppose, express personality. Maybe I like this brand because it's very cheap and I'm a bit miserly. Okay. What about artistic ideals? Well, surely in general, choice for certain brand of preference won't be an ideal one has for one's art. That would be a strange ideal. I want to make art made of Winsor and Newton white 427 or whatever it is. That would be a strange idea. But again, maybe it could conceivably express my ideals, maybe this is just the colour I need to achieve the kind of sparingness I see in my palette. So this view suggests, yeah, it could be a stylistic feature, though it probably won't be. Somewhat as the other views do, I guess. Okay. What about turning to some more interesting case? Then never mind paint, what about clouds? So Coho often has clouds in his paintings. In fact, clouds figure in his paintings so often you might think it's a stylistic feature. Even when it's a view from within a wood, clouds can be seen through the leaves. What is it with the clouds, Corot, you might ask? <laughs> now, the important thing about Corot is that there are clouds in the paintings, not the way they're painted. There's nothing particularly interesting about the way they're painted. This needs to be art historically correct. Let's just, take this, just take it on trust as a way of illustrating the painting. El Greco, in contrast, is not particularly hung up on clouds. Some El Grecos have clouds, some don't. But when there are clouds, boy, are there clouds. There are clouds painted in a very distinctive way, in this kind of febrile, vibrating way. So for El Greco, it's the way he painted clouds that's stylistic, not that he painted them. Now let me just give you a bit of a feel for the artistic ideal view by seeing what it might say here. <coughs> what you might say to make sense of these two things is this. In Corot's case, he's after, maybe his ideal is to have an aesthetic of the ordinary. No blazing skies, no amazing sunsets, no great thunderheads, just the beautiful and the everyday portrait. Adding clouds brings out the ordinariness of the weather, which you can bring out the beauty of the scene, even so you achieve your ideal. In contrast, El Greco wants his clouds to vibrate with the same energy as everything else in his paintings. 
Why? Because his ideal is something like an aesthetic of excess, a febrile, ma energized madness. Okay. Now suppose somebody has learned to paint from one or the other of these guys, but without absorbing their ideals. What then? So someone might produce work that, unlike El Greco's, has those vibrating clouds, because he learned his cloud painting from El Greco. But like, unlike, I got this right. Yeah, that's right. But so we've got the clouds. But the key thing about this artist, you might think, is not the way the clouds are painted, because that's just borrowed from El Greco, but that there are clouds in this guy's pictures is definitely a stylistic feature. It's perfectly possible if you tinker with what's going on with the artist to get this kind of result out. So you get the result that matching features, having clouds that look the way El Greco's look, is no guarantee of them being stylistic. They're stylistic in one context, El Greco's, they're not stylistic in the context of this guy. Rather than this guy, that there are clouds matters, but not the way they're painted. So intuitions might differ about this, hence my cautious question mark, nice and small. But that's the way we want to go. Can the views make sense of these three claims? Well, artistic ideals can accommodate all three. I've already showed how to accommodate the first two. Here's the third. Since the person paints clouds in the way he does, simply because that's how he learned to paint them from his master, the way they're painted is not an expression of his ideas for his art. So they're not stylistic. But maybe the pictures are full of clouds for a reason like Corot's or a different reason. So that there are clouds is stylistic. So the view seems admirably able to cope with the possibility of matching features which don't match in whether or not they're stylistic. Same look, the look is only stylistic in one context, not in the other. What about the personality views? What could they say here? Well, for different reasons, I think they struggle with the third claim. The narrow personality views struggle simply because its notion of personality is so thin. As long as this person is reliably churning out pictures and clowns that look this way, it doesn't really matter why it's happening. It's going to count as part of the dispositions underlying his art manufacture, and so they will be stylistic. In the case of implied personality contrast, there's a bigger tr problem. The bigger problem is this. If the style of a work is a matter of what you can infer about the personality of its implied author from the work, then the same evidence is going to give you the same conclusion. You're going to have more trouble suggesting that a feature that looks one way in the work of one artist and the same way in the work of another is only stylistic in one context. If these clouds are vibrating here and suggest febrileness in this implied author, why don't they do so in the other one too? Now, there may be ways of finessing the implied personality view to get around this. There are always, there's always more to be said. And in general, what I'm trying to do today is not knock down these views, just at the very least point that they need to the more greater work they need to do. But if you don't need to do that work, so much the better for your view. That's how you win arguments provisionally. <laughs> okay. Let's turn to a case that might be a little more problematic for the artistic ideals view. <coughs> Can flaws 
be stylistic. Well, you might think, I reckon they can. Ingres, a great artist. But what about those claw-like hands? The hands are so claw-like. This is not a good thing. This is a flaw. Magritte, not a great artist. But here's something that's not great about Magritte. He wasted his time painting. As long as he got the colours on the surface, he would have the same effect. Essentially, there's nothing painterly about Magritte, which is why it's rarely worth the trouble of going to look at them in the flesh. All you have to do is get the idea that's kind of what they're all about. Or so I say, anyway. Another example, just to show I'm not entirely obsessed with visual cases, Bob Dylan's voice. David Bowie described it as sand and glue. Now, I'm not saying it ruins Bob Dylan, but you might think it's at least prima facie a flaw. He didn't sing very well. It's surely not an outrageous thought. It looks like the rival views are not going to have too much trouble with this. On the narrow personality view, anything with either disposition, regularly manifesting your work, counts as aspects of personality broadly construed that the work expresses. So you don't care about singing, you're not very good at singing, whatever that can count. And on the implied personality view, we just read the character of the author off the stuff. So we, why don't we read in features that can come out in flaws? Maybe it is a kind of certain hastiness, an excitement in our ideas that makes me read so uninterested in the nature of the dark surface. What about the artistic ideals view? Here it might seem to be in trouble. I mean, if work style is an expression of ideals, how can crappy features express the ideals? And that's the basic problem. Okay. But there are three, there were only two till I was preparing the talk this morning. Now there are three things we might say in response. First, ideals can be expressed not simply in their realisation, but in failed manifest attempts to realise them. I can show you what I'm trying to do not by doing it, I mean that's one way to do it, but sometimes I can show you what I'm trying to do by failing to do it, as long as my failure is not completely abject. I can see Rob was trying to be funny at that point in the talk. <laughs> Similarly then, in artwork. Secondly, your ideals can be expressed not just in what you attend to, but in what you neglect. So Dylan doesn't care about the sand and blue voice because Dylan's so into the politics, that would be the thought. When his focus on the politics makes his expressed in the neglect of the niceties of his singing. Now, of course, that doesn't really sound right about Dylan, you might think, and I agree. So here's the third way you might go. Maybe flaws can be embraced as part of larger sets of ideals. It's not that Dylan simply never paid attention to how to sing better. Rather, he chose to leave the voice rough because it fitted with the rest of what his ideals were. The idea of being an angry young man raging against an unfair world, whatever it may be. Okay, so the artistic ideals, you can at least say something about flaws. What about limits? Are there limits to the forms of artistic output that can manifest a given style? Suppose I paint. Can I express, can I have the same style in my drawing? 
Sure you can. In my etching? Yeah. In my sculpture? Maybe. Right? Rembrandt will convince us of the first two steps. Picasso might convince us of the third. But then what about hip-hop? What about graffiti? Could Picasso have written a novel in Picasso's style? It's not a question about what Picasso was psychologically capable of. It's about what the style will tolerate. Can we make sense of a novel in Picasso-esque style? Well, so I don't, we don't know the answer to this question, but I think it's an interesting question. Uh, at least there isn't a general answer to be endorsed. Right? That's but look, if, you, if there are limits, then why are there limits? That's the interesting question. Why do they lie where they do? So if you think about the personality view, the view we rejected early on through the Tolstoy objection, just go back to that. Why can't your personality come out in all sorts of things you do, and certainly all sorts of artistic things you do if you're capable of them? If you are querulous, or compassionate, or vivacious, why shouldn't any kind of artistic work be an expression of that very same aspect of your personality? And if so, for the raft of aspects that make up your personality, why can't you straightforwardly be Picasso writing a novel? And if that's true of personality, who cares, you might say, nobody believes that view, remember Tolstoy? Then why wouldn't it be true of implied personality too? Well, maybe there's something that could be said here. Let's not worry about what it is. There's a prima facie problem. Maybe the narrow personality view is an improvement because I realize this is a confusing feature of the nomenclature. It's narrow because it's not the person's whole personality that's at work. But in another way, it's the broad personality view because it doesn't care about normal personality, it just cares about dispositions that come out in the work. And if the dispositions are dispositions to make painting with a certain character, it's not so very clear they could be dispositions to make novels with the same character. So maybe there's something to be said there. But, you know, as you can probably tell, I'm not really interested in saving these views from the crucifixes I'm trying to skewer them on. What I'm interested in really is what the artistic ideals for you should say about this. And I think this makes perfect sense of our uncertainty about what the general answer to this question is. Ideals can stack up in various levels of abstraction. Your most abstract ideals might easily be abstract enough for work in many different art forms to be an expression of those. For instance, you intend to make work that is Apollinean rather than Vanistic, work that consoles people with beauty rather than making them miserable about the grim reality of life. That's a very high-level idea. But when it comes to actually guiding your work in a way that allows it to express those ideals, this very abstract idea is going to have to be mediated with something a little bit more concrete. So it may be that as an architect, you wish to make Dionysian buildings, and you can do so only by making them horribly organic, the way that, in my view, Gaudi's buildings are horribly organic, not that I think they're Dionysian. But it may be when you come to write music, that option's not available. Dionysian music can't be organic, it must be something else. So as the more abstract ideals make contact with specific work through more concrete ones, 
A mighty hood is, you'll get ideals that can't carry across different media. And that raises the possibility that your ideals as a whole can't be expressed across media, only the sort of top level, the most abstract Nothing recognizably you is expressible across the whole range. Okay. So we expect the answer to this question to be, well, it kind of depends on what your ideals are, which is why there's no general answer. But there are pressures against any given individual style stretching across media regardless. <coughs> and here's a further thought about this. The narrow personality view basically locates any obstacle here in brute psychological fact. Remember, the thought was, you want to make, I don't know, writing that reflects a certain way on people and how they operate. But you just can't do that with music. The decision doesn't stretch. But any obstacle there is just a brute psychological fact about you. According to the artistic ideal view, in a way, the obstacle is not a brute psychological fact. It's a matter of deep choice. So Nick, I can't really speak in my own voice here because this is a nice example of Nick's. Nick has his example. The question is, could Audrey Hepburn have liked heavy metal? <laughs> uh, this is not a question about art, but it is a question about style, and it illustrates, in general, that the necessity governing style is volitional, not brute psychological. Sure, she could have got down in the mosh pit and put up the horns. This is apparently how you describe this. <laughs> But she wouldn't because it would not have been true to the person she wanted to be. She could have done it, it's psychologically possible, but only at the cost of distorting or changing or substituting one set of ideals for the how to be for another. This is not an art example, but it illustrates that a commitment to ideals gives you a kind of volitional necessity. And that seems to us to be the kind of necessity that's operating here. Okay, now I said the paper was not about pictorial art alone, and indeed it wasn't about art with a capital A alone. That is true. However, there is an interesting connection between art with a capital A and style, and that's what I want to turn to next. So the central question here is this Why is style an artistic achievement? Style is an artistic achievement. Artists are encouraged to develop a style. Indeed, you might think you haven't really succeeded as an artist until you have a style, unless you've done something pretty arch, like make your art a rejection of the whole idea of having a style. Either way, you can't just ignore the topic. But why is it? The personality views, in general, it seems to us, are struggling here. For a start, it's not clear that expressing your personality is an achievement. Most people do it effortlessly all the time. But suppose it's an achievement. Why is it an artistic achievement? That's completely opaque. It may be an achievement that occurs within art if art is partly about expressing a personality. But that doesn't make it an artistic achievement. Persuading people to fund your projects is an achievement. It's a project that happens within art. But it's not an artistic achievement. Similarly, for expressing their personality. So they seem to run into a dead end with this question. What about the artistic ideals view? Well, 
Here's the first thing we might try saying on its behalf, what I'm about to suggest. It's not a good answer to this question, it's at most an answer to a related question. So the first thought would be this. Okay, I get it. For your work to have style is for it to express your ideals. Expressing your ideals is standardly, if not necessarily, a matter of realising those ideals. Realising ideals is making work that has value, at least by your own rights. And if they are your ideals for your work as art, it'll have value as art, at least by your own rights. So at least by your own rights, giving your work style makes it art. Isn't that an artistic achievement? Well, this is a goodish answer to this question. Why in art, if you're aiming at art, does getting style into things ensure that art is present? It's most an answer to that question. But that's not the question we're trying to answer right now. Question on right is not question on left. So we need to say a little bit more or something different. And I think to do so, the view should appeal to the ideal, the fanciest notion of expression. The notion of expression as articulation, as making clear to you and your audience what is expressed. So if style is the expression of your ideals for your art, and if expression is articulating those ideals, then Make giving your work a style gets you and everybody else clearer about the values you want your art to embody. And that is an artistic achievement. That is something very close to the project of making art that giving your work style necessarily furthers you in doing. Now you might worry about this. You might have a bootstrapping worry. You might say, wait a minute. So giving my work style is an artistic achievement because it's a way of getting clearer about the good features I want my art to have. Aren't I in danger of disappearing up my own navel? As it were, I'm aiming for something, I'm getting clear about what I'm aiming for, and getting clear about that is already achieving it? That seems a bit like bootstrapping. That's not really fair, I think. Firstly, it's a familiar thought that lots of our activities have achievements built into them that are essentially just, if you like, second-order achievements. They rely on taking the value of the activity for granted. There's nothing so great about getting the ball in the net gracefully unless getting the ball in the net matters. The first thought is bootstrapping is not always a bad thing. And second, related thought... While getting the ball in the net may not matter, making art matters. Nothing I've said suggests the only value that your art can have is as clarifying the value you would like your art to have. Nothing I've said entails that. So this is just riding on the back of other valuable features your art might have. And so bootstrapping is not a serious one. Okay, now, last twist in this bit of discussion. <coughs> Here's an objection that actually makes, brings out what's good about it. The objection is this. Well, wait a minute. Getting clear about your ideals for your art might be an artistic achievement as long as you've got the good ideals. But what if you are some would-be Thomas Kincaid, some purveyor of mortgage rubbish, 
and getting clear about that, but you won't think of it that way, is what you're doing. Is that an artistic achievement? Is getting clear about your bad ideals an artistic achievement? Hard question, we say. And obviously it's a bit like the hard question, is the wholehearted pursuit of your ethical ideals a good thing, even if you have the wrong ideals? So you're pretty closely analogous. And that, what makes it hard is, yeah, I'm not quite sure what to say, you know, flipping backwards and forwards. But, so fair question, is style a good thing in bad art? Well, here's the neat feature of the view. You can make sense if style is the expression of your ideals, getting clear about them, you can get clear about exactly why you'd be puzzled about this question. It's not clear what the answer is because it is a question a bit like the question in the ethical, the analog in the ethical case. Whereas the other views can't say anything about why this question is a hard question. We just seem to run up against the brick wall when it comes to it. Okay. Just three more topics to go, and one of them is really one topic with a bit of a riff on it. So, unity. Style, people sometimes say, is a kind of unity. For your work to have style is for there to be something that unites its features and unites the various things you've produced. It's a kind of unifying thing. But why? What sort of unity is involved? And why is it present? Now, personality views have got something nice and easy to say here, at least those that appeal to the traditional notion of personality have. Because you might think a personality is also a kind of unity. For someone to have a personality, not just to be a fragmentary series of flashes of various dispositions coming out, is precisely for you to make some sense of an underlying organisation in their psychology. So if personality involves unity, and style is the expression of personality, it's not surprising that style would also involve unity. What about the artistic ideals view? Here things look rather tired, uh, more challenging. After all, nothing I've said so far, I think, couldn't just be read as a claim about individual ideals. Now when you start piling them up, why should they be unified? Why would you expect any unity at all if the artistic ideology is true? Well, I'm going to answer this in two stages. The second stage involves the next bit of the talk. But here's the first stage, and it looks like a complete answer until I give you the second stage. So be ready to feel satisfied, and then be ready to be disappointed. Okay, look, we need to distinguish between the ideals that the work expresses and the features that realise or express them. So I want my work to be sparing and clean. That's the ideal. The features will be things like a strong, simple line and maybe a clean or a pared-down palette. And here are two observations about the relationship between these two things. Firstly, each ideal tends to demand realisation across a range of features. If I want my work to be economical or luscious, it's no good simply using an economical palette or a luscious line. 
If I couple that to a luscious mind or a sparing palate, I'm sending mixed messages. It's not clear what ideal I'm trying to express. For my work to express a given ideal, there must, as it were, be plenty of indications across a range of features that that is the ideal it's expressing. So each ideal tends to demand realisation across a range of features. But equally, and for the same reason, each feature will tend to express a range of ideals. The palette I choose can't only express an ideal of being thin and sparing. If I also want to express a kind of luxuriousness, the palette's going to get rotated. So many ideals dictate various features like this, and each feature points back to various ideals. The pressure in this direction is for unity in the work. It is for a range of features to express a given ideal. The pressure in this direction is for unity in the ideals. It is for the ideals to be such that many features can express them all. So there's a natural pressure this two-way arc of influence towards unity in the ideals expressed and the features that express them. Okay. So, it's not surprising when you start thinking about what it would be for work to express artistic ideals that it might be unified. Now, none of this is to say it must be unified. And this seems like an advantage of the view. Because I started by saying style was a kind of unity, and no doubt it is. But it's not clear how much unity must be present for style to be. Can't there be a style that is precisely the style of lacking unity, except in whatever minimum sense is required for style? Maybe there could be. So it's good that these pressures are not insuperable. They're just tendencies, powerful tendencies. And our claim will be, to the extent they are irresistible, to that extent they will necessarily be to that extent. Okay. So, that's all nice and good, but here's another thought that is related to the unity stuff. Style, you might say, is a kind of gestalt. To find style in a work or across a range of works, is to find it or them to exhibit some kind of overall appearance feature that is sort of organisation. It's got to be some high level look they have in common, or if it's music, sound they have in common. What if it's literature? Good question. But that just shows we need the notion of gestalt to stretch beyond the normal sensory modes. But a gestalt is itself a kind of unity. If it's a sort of organisation, it is a kind of unity. So if we think that style is connected to gestalt, what's the point about this A and B and pressure stuff in two ways? Why don't we just dump all that? Okay. Now we do think style is a kind of gestalt. Sorry, I've gone one too far there, never mind. We think every view should acknowledge this fact. You could tweak any of the views I've given you to do that. Here's how it would look in the case of artistic ideals. You get artistic ideals star. For work to have individual artistic styles, for it to exhibit a gestalt that expresses the ideals the artist has for art. Right? That's just the view tweaked so as to insist on gestalt. 
And it does so in a way that is literally optional, it does so in a kind of very uh, committed way, it says the Gestalt is what does the expression. So that, in a way, is our considered position, or at least, yeah, that's our considered position as far as it goes. Um, now why doesn't that leave A and B high and dry? Can't we just jettison all the thoughts I gave you about ideals requiring expression in a variety of features and features themselves having to embody a set of ideals until there's unity in the ideals? Well, maybe. But look, it's quite clear by the time you're at this view that it's been true all the way along, really. That on a view like this, and probably on most of the views I've talked about today, style's really the kind of intersection of two things. There's a qualitative character that goes towards making up style, and there's an underlying reality that's got to be present as well. If there weren't a demand for the latter, there'd be no room for talk of expressing anything in accounts of style. That's the appeal to the underlying reality. But if there were no role for the earlier stuff either, then we wouldn't, certainly wouldn't need to talk about Gestalt. So style's the kind of intersection of appearance with underlying reality. Now this stuff about Gestalt importing unity is only the level of the appearance. So if we said nothing about the underlying reality, you'd have the following situation. Style is true involves unity because the appearance element involves unity. But the underlying reality to which that appearance gives expression could be massively diverse and more extensive than makes it through to the appearance. So putting it in terms of ideals, I could have many, many ideals for my work. The only ones that are relevant to the style are the few that get integrated into the united appearance that the world must have. Now that's not exactly incoherent, but it's a bit unhappy. It sort of makes style a site of accidental intersection between two quite different sets of forces. Whereas if we appeal to the pressures I pointed to in the last section, we can get rid of this problem, because there's unity in the underlying reality as well as in the appearance. So we get a more satisfying overall view. Okay, nearly there. What's that say? Yeah, that says that. That's good. Okay, lastly then, let's think about the appeal of style, or what you might think of as its normative force. So we take it that style does have some kind of normative force. If Picasso comes up with an exciting new style, as he did, artists, other artists, and audiences should attend to it. It's an important contribution. Okay, maybe I'm stacking the deck by making it Picasso, but just take someone smaller. Their styles, too, are in some ways shouts into the great argument of art that others ought to listen to. But what normative force do they have? Well, it's not that these are rules others should follow, or even paradigms they must pursue. When Picasso comes up with his style, the wrong reaction is to try and make your style the same as Picasso. Rather, what you've got to try and do is somehow learn from Picasso's style. Learn from the example he's setting you to pursue your own style. So it's an invitation to consider more than an order to conform with. Okay, 
That's the nature of the normative force. Now, why does it have this force? Well, all personality views struggle to answer. Because all personality views, what can they say? They can say the following. Well, uh, if my work's to have style, it should be an expression of my personality. Now look at Picasso over there expressing his personality. What can I learn from it? Or what can you learn from it? You can learn how to express your personality, maybe. But you can't really learn much about the personality to express because his personality is not yours. And there's no suggestion on anyone's part you should try and be a, as a person like Picasso just because he's got great style. Now, earlier I did say these views can't explain why style is an artistic achievement. Having taken that hit, they might try and use... I'll think I've developed a metaphor. They might try and use the claim they've not learned the right to to do some work. They might say, well, look, if style's an artistic achievement, then the reason people should attend to it is the same reason they should attend to all artistic achievements. But style's normative force is not like that. Picasso's producing work in a bold new style is not like someone working out how to write a few in seven parts. Right, the latter's an artistic achievement, but it doesn't matter to you unless you're into seven-part views. Picasso's style should matter to all artists, or at least all artists working in media in which that style might be expressed. So I don't think the personality views have got anything satisfying to say here. Contrast, and this shouldn't be a surprise, because surely this was the rabbit we were always going to pull out of the hats. Contrast what the artistic ideals for you can say. Ideals, as we're thinking of them, are plural. That's to say, they are themselves good ways to be, but it's not required that anyone else be. They're good, so think about ideals for living your life. There are ways it would be good for you to live your life, but it's not compulsory for anyone else to. You may choose to be a vivacious, flippant, waster of opportunities. Be like me, why don't you? You may choose to be monkish and devoted to the long-term achievement. I don't have to be like you, you don't have to be like I am, but we should both attend what each other's take to do the good in life to see what we can learn from it. Just so with artistic ideals. When an artist expresses her ideals in her work, she's laying out a good way, in her view, for art to be. It's not a way that all art should be, it's not a way that your art must be, but it's a good way art might be, and if you're interested in making art, you should attend to what she takes to be good. And that is the force, the normative force, of her style for you. That's if you're an artist. What if you remember the audience? Well, if you remember the audience, you care about art. You think it offers goods, and here's someone with a conception of the goods it might offer. So you should attend to too. <coughs> what if you don't care about art? Well, of course, this may be where the spade turns. Maybe if you don't care about art, Picasso's style should be as nothing to you. But actually, even there, something can be said. Because, as I said earlier, styles come in increasingly abstract stacks. And at the top of the stacks, an ideal, sorry, not styles, ideals do. At the top of the stacks are ideals sufficiently abstract to reach beyond art. So, sparing, lean art might be suggestive of a certain way of living. So might luscious, voluptuous, decadent art. So might Dionysian art, so might Apollinian art. 
So even those who don't yet care about art might, if they can get their head around it, learn something from the ideals an artist expresses in her art, even though their ideals for her art as art. Thanks.